For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. We didn't even really discuss Oxford, did we? I wanted to know if their badge has still got a big water buffalo on it. <laughs> the head of a water buffalo. <laughs> so a lot about it looks like some pagan Satan with like a horn fetish. <laughs> this is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club, and this is your show. I don't know, you lose one Manchester derby and all those United fans that you'd forgotten about because they've been quiet for about six years come out of the woodwork and don't leave you alone. Some of us have had to resort to dodge tactics like hiding in fridges or ignoring calls to speak to media outlets. It's a result that probably puts an end to City's hopes of catching Liverpool this season. More on that shortly. But at least City went and put things right in that dead rubber on Wednesday night. Anyway, less of my sarcasm and welcome to this week's Blue Moon podcast. On today's show, we'll be looking back at the last seven days, trying to work out what went wrong after it was looking so right. We'll also be looking ahead to matches against Arsenal and Oxford United and we're back on our journey through the last decade with a look at City's title-winning season under Manuel Pellegrini. I'm your host David Mooney and with me in the studio this week is Chris Higginbottom. Hey, you all right? I'm not too bad, thank you very much. And uh, unfortunately our second guest for today, Katie Mullock, can't be here for family reasons but Katie, we hope everything works out okay. Yeah. Um, so let's let's start off with uh, with United and Zagreb. Um, I think the the main bulk of this part of the show, Chris, is uh, is going to be United, and I'm sorry about that. Um, mm. Why? Like, I think the first question that I want to ask about it all, in in terms of the bigger picture, in the in in the intro there, I alluded to it. Is there any catch in Liverpool now? Would you like me to just give a one word answer or expand upon no? Uh, you can expand on it for me, please, if that's all right. Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> I didn't think that's what you meant, but so it's... I no, mean, sorry, I'm being yeah. facetious, but yeah. Uh, no, it's not, it's not happening, is it? It's going to take a collapse of momentous... England batting proportions. Well, yeah, good enough, yeah. Even even England batting uh, isn't going to, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Write it off. Stop Stop grasping at it. We've won the league for the last two seasons with no little aplomb. And this season, um, we're just going to have to, you know, face it and say that VAR's a wonderful system. And, uh, I'm going to come on to that, don't worry. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, we're not catching them, are we? Uh, Why has it turned out like this? I mean, you mentioned VAR. It's not just VAR, is it, surely? It's not just VAR. Um, it's we've, been like the perfect storm. It's kind of yeah. It's kind of been the perfect storm. We took a bit of a risk, a huge risk, in letting somebody like uh, Company go and not replacing him. There's there's enough words been said reflection reflecting on influence off and on the pitch that a man like that gives you. Um, even the people, even, you know, Mika Richards a few weeks back kind of jokingly, you know, friendly sniping, saying, 
he was like the, the headmaster and I felt like I had to the fact that you've got somebody who, who is, is the headmaster yeah and now you've got a school with no headmaster so you know it's not balls everywhere <laughs> um, but yeah we've we've not replaced him it's a massive risk because if for instance I don't know plucking something out of thin air if your main centre half then gets injured forever um, <laughs> you're going to have to like you know maybe call stick up, a defensive midfielder call <laughs> upon your your love of midfielders to, to plug these gaps uh, you know to, to fill these vacuums and it's not really worked out has it so one one final question on the on the bigger picture before we get to United. Uh, we're all Leicester now, I assume. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, Mayor Quimby all the way. <laughs> Mayor Quimby? Have you not noticed how much Brendan Rodgers looks like uh, Mayor Quimby? No, but he Simpsons. does. You're, you're absolutely does. right. I stand by my ethnic slur. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bad impression, but, you know. it's. Uh, I'm never going to unsee that now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So United then. Um why were City so vulnerable to, to counter-attacks in that game? It seemed, to, it seemed to be City had so much control with the ball, but United had all the chances by just going, oh, well, we've got the ball now, let's let's sprint down that exactly. end. Exactly, yeah. As soon, when we've got the ball, everything's peachy. As soon as we lose the ball, because the we've they, they look a little bit mentally, physically tired, um, which is understandable. It's like... <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to get into like um, political or you know analogies like that. But if you streamline something, if you take away either intentionally or not, if you take away from the capability that you have and say we're going to do the same thing, just with less people, with less resources, yeah, with less resources, and try and achieve the same end result, it ain't going to happen, is it? Um, eventually cracks are going to show. Have City done that though? Because in terms of the squad, they, I mean, the, the the squad itself, if they were to bring in another foreign player, they can't register them. They've not got enough space in the squad. They'd have to they'd have to get rid of a foreign player. It's like a one-out, one-in policy for City's foreign players. Well, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily focus on foreign players. There's, there's players there that... But no, in, in terms of building the squad, it just shows that the squad itself, in terms of the it's numbers they're thin. allowed, it's, it, it, it's actually full. <clears throat> it's full or thin? I mean... It's full. What's it full of? I mean, we've lo- we've we've just talked about players that we've well, one player that we've lost in terms of he's you know chosen to go on another path. One chance. Um, we've lost the player that we're relying on to to be to in that position. Um, we've also for a long period of this season lost the player on the left hand side of him that dovetails so well in that part of defence. We have such an intense kind of game plan high up the pitch that requires even when when you lose the ball particularly you need you need that intensity to almost well you need it to be more intense when you lose the ball it's already well you got the ball isn't it you can you can stride about you can strut you can slide passes nonchalant as you like when you lose the ball the intensity needs to to go up a few gears and I just think the fact that we've lost some of our best players means that we're not able to do that. You might be motivated mentally to do it, but you've but physically it's not quite the that. sort of entropy, the 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 atrophy, the the, the you just not got it in the tank. Do you know what I mean? And once it happens once, you become psychologically feel like oh whoa this didn't used to happen, and the other teams smell blood and the same. It's like a, a 
cumulative kind of effect, isn't it? Yeah, um, you, sometimes you just have to kind of stand up and, you know, do you know what I mean? Just kind of put a brave face on it and battle through it. Because, like, I, I mean, in a weird way, it reminded me of my childhood. When I was a kid, I was scared of dogs. And my mum always used to say they can smell you can they can smell that you're scared of them. So mm. just, just pretend that you're not. Yeah, they can smell fear. That's not fear, mum. I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> not yeah. quite what happened. Like that, but, but, <laughs> yeah. but you know what I mean? If you put, if you kind of, it's that kind of faux, if you believe you're confident, you yeah, give yeah, off yeah. the air of confidence. You, you game face, you war face, you sort of, you, the attitude, you need to steal yourself. But... I think they are doing that, but the fact that they're literally a couple of guys down, and we're talking key fighters in that kind of that kind of unit, it's only going to detract from the overall kind of impetus that you're able to impose on people on the pitch, and it shows. Pep's coming out, and he, he comes out, and he says, which I think is the right thing. He comes out and says, "Well, I think we played really well." And yeah, we are. We are doing. We're probably making the best effort we can with what we've got available. Because I'll tell you what, if we had the players that we have, that we should have, that we want to have, that are injured, that are absent through whatever, then they probably would be a lot closer to Liverpool right now. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. I think with Laporte, um, even Zinchenko, and I don't think he's the world's best defender, but he he fits in that little role. With Sane, and again, we're not talking defence, but just the intensity and the. Well, I mean, just looking at that, I was going to come on to the defence because, at City, as bad as City were defensively, in a weird way, I want to ask the question: Was the defence actually the problem? Because I like watching the derby. A lot of John Stones came in for a lot of flack after the derby, and all I can seem to put my finger on is because is that he went off injured. Well, I don't know. I mean. It's like it's like if you if you're trying to run if you're trying to break a wall down, and there's the wall is completely solid and you can't see any light through it. There's no chinks in the the armor of it. There's no bricks missing. Then you you see that as a very daunting task, don't you? And if there's if you start taking out some bricks in the wall, you're buoyed by that, aren't you? And you think, yeah, yeah, we're gonna knock this wall down. And if you're that wall. If you're this sentient wall that's suddenly got a, <laughs> a complex about itself, you're going to be like, "Oh no, they're going to not be." I'm labouring the point a bit. Basically, but... basically, what what I'm suggesting is is should there be some sort of like moat in front of the wall to make it harder to get to the wall, like a Mott and Bailey, yeah, uh, effect. Yeah, we should need the, the moat. The, is the midfield doing the job it should be doing? <laughs> no, the midfield isn't doing the job it's doing because. <sighs> We've got Rodri who's kind of still bedding in. We've got Fernandinho who is a lot of the time being moved into defence. We've not we've taken a gamble in not replacing company and it's not paid off due to the injury in Laporte. And no matter how you try and dress it up, that is the main reason I think we're suffering. Yeah, there's been calls from I'd say varying corners. I think the, I first heard it from uh, Rob Wilson, one of the uh, one of, who's actually on the show later on, uh, talking about the 2013-14 season. Yeah, um, suggesting maybe swapping Fernandinho and Rodri around. Let Fernandinho carry on doing his screening job. Rodri dropping into the back four. It's not ideal, given that you want Rodri to settle in midfield and you want him to to learn that role. Yeah, but just kind of as a means until Laporte's back, sort of thing. Yeah, I can, you know, I mean, at the moment, I've got absolutely. I'm open to. I'm open to options. Show me. Show me how it works. Show, I'd, I'd love to see it. I mean, we've played him there. We've played him there against a couple of, ti- a couple yeah, of yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. And, but it's. But I'm, all I'm thinking is, it's no clean sheets in ten for City now. Yeah, and that's that's suggesting that there's a major problem. Which is yeah, which is all very well if you're like 
peppering them in at the other end and we've not won enough games to suggest that that is occurring so yeah I would I, Fernandinho is like he's a bit of a keystone isn't he at the moment um, in the spine of the team we've got no Aguero we've got no Laporte putting Fernandinho out of position still means that the, the spine of the team is uh, not there so a bit wonky yeah yeah um yeah, wonky. Yes, <laughs> I speak as a man who has a bit of a wonky spine as well. Well, it, I don't want to really get into hurts. medical yeah. conditions and curvature, right? but yeah, it's like um, it—it's very apparent that the 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 strength isn't there that yeah. we had. Well, I threatened this. Uh, I've been threatening this for a while. Uh, I put the call out on uh, the show a few weeks ago now for uh, VAR jingles for when we talk about VAR. Uh, we've got the first one of those coming up now. User submitted VAR jingles. The, the the only kind of the only thing I want from them is that they are terrible. I want them to be absolutely awful. I don't want to. Don't want any highly produced good VAR jingles. I've got a terrible one in the pipeline, so I'm gonna I'm gonna furnish you with that at some point well don't don't spoil it now let's, no, let's no, save it for, for when it comes out something because, to look forward to uh, this one is uh, from Cassie Phoenix she's 10 years old take oh, it away Cassie, on, Cassie. Ooh. have that wow <laughs> that, I can't believe that's just dropped I tell you what the only thing that that doesn't comply with in your set out preconditions when he said they had to be terrible, that isn't terrible. That's brilliant. <laughs> she has hit it out of the park. That is amazing. So if you power to your elbow, Cassie Lass, that's amazing. If you want to add your voice to the uh, to the list of um, VAR jingles that we've got, do send them in. Uh, tweet us at Blue Moon Podcast. The email address is on the website as well, uh, bluemoonpodcast.com. Get in touch, and uh, yeah, we can we could feature some of yours. But now it's VAR time, Chris. Um, I'm just getting over that jingle like, can i get that on spotify that's banging i i'll see what i can do i don't know i mean it's it, i can send it to you if you want if you want me to mate do. put it out there um first off any complaints over the uh, penalty award for united well united got a penalty so that's annoying um but if i was a referee which i'm not but i would have given it my my only complaint is that it it sh- like from my seat it looks blatantly obvious it was a penalty. So from a couple of yards away as a referee, what I didn't want was that kind of two or three, well, it wasn't two or three minutes, it was about 90 seconds, wasn't it, of City getting the ball again, getting it to halfway line. Silver, I think Silver kind of knew himself, David Silver, because he had a shot from the halfway line. And then having that moment of of the referee stood with his finger on his ear listening to it, and then overruling it, giving the penalty, all the drama of it, it it looked so blatantly obvious a penalty. Mm. That it just should have been well, give it, and then if it's wrong, it'll be overturned. Yeah, not that convinced it would be overturned if it was wrong because that's not how VAR works. But you, you know what I mean. Well, it's certainly not how it works with us. But no, it, it was a. What can you say? It was a penalty. Um, but then know. the flip side is that City had what three handball shouts that weren't given. What did you make of any of them? There was one in particular which I thought was. Again, like the 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 United penalty, um, I, you know, trying to be impartial, would have given. Uh, main reason being, it was a penalty. <laughs> um, the, <laughs> there's one of the handballs. Good reason, that, if anything well, else, really. You know, I'm a I'm a moral man, but like, there's another one where the in the United area where um, the the hand, 
Was it the second incident? Where well, I can't remember the order of the incidents. So no, like, nor can I. As I say, I've been, I've, I've been loath to to watch any repeat of the the entire fiasco. There's um, two key ones that keep getting shared on on social media as as kind of oh I can't believe this one wasn't given. Uh, the first one was uh, was Victor Lindelof as uh, the ball comes into the box. He's in the six yard box. He's kind of more horizontal than he is vertical. Yeah, is it like a, a 10 degree Angle, incline yeah. from the floor where, you know... And it you'd... hits his arm about three times as it bounces around and, and Aguero stops, turns to the referee, arms in the air. Ham, stop doing that. Not Aguero, it wasn't Aguero either. It was um, <laughs> it was somebody else because Aguero was injured for All the right, game. Shows you how need much attention I was that. paying. <laughs> nevertheless, we'll carry on. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but this, this nevertheless, we'll convinced. carry on. You, 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 you can't, you've got to play to the whistle. Uh, no, that's the only thing... You know, the Liverpool one, which was so blatant, where it came into the box and Alexander-Arnold kind of swipes it like he was trying to... He volleyballed it. He volleyed it like he was trying to remove a flying uh, cake out of the room. He just swatted it Why like a Why is there a, big... a flying cake? I don't know. Don't know. I was trying to think <laughs> of some 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 really unaerodynamic object thing, that you yeah. would slap your hand against, um, which he also did against Everton on a yellow card and didn't Funny get that. Yeah, it's all that. Anyway, um, yeah, but the, but, the but penalty incident against you. Yeah, the first one where he's nearly on the deck. You can't expect somebody to fall to the floor, and when their shoulder is about to hit the floor, what keep their arms their arms behind their back? You can't really expect that. But there was, I think it was the one after that, and I could be wrong. I'm perhaps not getting the order in, uh, you know, correctly. This Fred when Fred slid in. Yeah, that that seemed like when you move your arm towards the ball. That is that's handball. Well, I'm I'm going to now blow a hole in your theory because in in what we accept as handball of what should probably be given i'm 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 of i'm talking common sense versus the actual yeah, laws of the game that's now. that's where we are now yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah because i'm actually of the opinion that both of those were penalties i i think both of those incidents i think you should give penalties for them i know yeah. lindlov is defending he's trying to get his body on the line it has hit his thigh first and then come up onto his arm but he's in a position where it's in the six-yard box and it's he's gaining a clear advantage by hitting his arm twice. Mm. The same for, for Fred blocking the cross. He's blocked a cross with his arm. Mm. That has, unfair advantage, yeah. It's an, it's an unfair advantage. Is that the rule now? The but law no, the, now? the law says, like in the, in the first one, Lindelof, um, the ball deflected off his thigh and as the law says, if it deflects off a part of your body before hitting the arm, it can't be a defensive handball. Um, the Fred one... If the bo- if the arm is being used to support the body between the the ground and and the between the body and the ground and the ball strikes it, it can't be given as handball. So by the letter of the law, both of those decisions were correct. But in any common sense, it doesn't feel like they're the right decisions. No, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, we're biased, aren't we? Because you support your team and you want the decisions to go your way, and you look at that and you think, oh wow, but oh even like. Remember Mika Richards at Anfield when he was literally trying to shield his arm, and it up. hit his foot, bounced up onto his arm. Yeah, and the penalty was given. Phil Dowd actually apologised for that because he said he, I got the law wrong. Well, it's like the mainstream media putting something on the front page and apologising two weeks later in the small print on page twenty-three. Apologies mean nothing. Damage is done, isn't it? Um, so com- Phil, Phil com- if you're listening, <laughs> Phil, if you're listening, I'm coming for you. No, but like I, ju- I just think. Why Why are we not relying on any uh, common sense? The thing is with VAR, I just distrust it. I just well, let's, it. let's have a look at the, at the Zagreb incident. Why was the elbow on Rodri not even checked? I am absolutely aghast at how that has not been... 
even retrospectively, we used to have after the game stuff, didn't you? Where, um, oh well, someone's basically you might as well have. Aguero, Aguero was suspended for the derby a few years ago because he was he was a judge to have elbowed a West Ham player, and that was really contentious. Yeah, it was like I don't you know, and again we're biased, but you could be a neutral and look at that and go, I'm not a hundred percent. You know, if you put it before a jury, for instance, I don't think he'd get convicted of elbowing <laughs> him in the face. You are charged with hereby elbowing that guy, and it wouldn't have it wouldn't have happened. That one is like the most blatant thing you've ever seen in your life. Rodri's come to try and close him. He's he's bodily, you know. Con- it's a contact sport. He's he's onto him. He's he's with him. They're contesting the ball up until that incident in a fair manner. He's just swung and he elbow. swung it. Can you explain that to me? Can I you? Can't. Ex- I think. If, can the- you put yourself in the shoes of a UEFA official or a referee or the third or the umpteenth official? Deep in the technology bunker but or wherever they are. What and... frustrates me about it all is is that 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 elbow, that that sort that sort of incident is the thing that VAR can have a look at and get right. Mm. And what we're doing is we're nitpicking over whether the ball touched somebody's hand on the way through when they scored, and they've not gained an advantage, but yeah. it did brush their fingertips. Or whether, whether somebody's, somebody's boot toe is offside. offside. Yeah, and we're not even look- when the toe is offside, we're not looking at when the ball has left the foot, and we're not defining yeah. that. Rationally, or and and, and we're saying exactly. these are black and white. This is a decision that is it either happened or it didn't. Therefore, yeah, yeah. it's a, it's against the laws of the game. Whereas this one, which is it, it, you know ninety nine percent of people will go, oh, he meant that, and he meant to do him that. What's he sp- How do you get? How do you get? What was it, was it? Punch him in the throat? Would that get a decision? Um, stamp on his neck? Uh, kick him in the back? I mean. Palm a cake into his face. I mean, what do you want? What do you? What are you supposed to do? Can you go onto the field to play with a cake? That's, uh, there's a very, very. Um... It's a matter of discretion. I reckon I could sneak a cake onto a pitch. <laughs> if you were going to sneak a cake onto the pitch, how would you do it? Well, um, it'd probably be something structurally, you know, Solid. intact, like a Victoria sponge, something like that. <laughs> I'd. Uh, it'd have to be a big game. Hide it behind a pennant, and then just wham, cake in the face. Yeah, there you go. before we've even kicked off. Just a few words on on Zagreb before we uh, we finish the first part because uh, it was a nice it was a way, nice way to bounce back from the derby defeat a, a quite what I thought was quite a good performance with a we, young team yeah we bounced back um, great to see Foden in there like oh, wow can't can't uh... your face then was the exact you know the emoji that is the exploding head. <laughs> Well, no, but but a joyous exploding yeah. head, exploding with joy rather than um, you know explosives. That was your face then. Yeah, well, that's it, it was it was mind blowingly good. Uh, it, what more does that man have to do? He was uh, he was the best player on the pitch by a mile. There was a there was an occasion where late on in the game he got fouled. He does that little thing, doesn't he? Where he draws a player in, and they're thinking, "I'll show you your little." And he draws them in, he draws them in, and then he has, he's got a, a little flick about him, hasn't he, where he just flicks it off with his left foot to someone who's uh, adjacent to now him. Now in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He waits, he waits, he waits. You're in space. They're now out of position because they're right on my back. I'm going to give it you now because now when I spin and you pass the ball, I am also in space. We're on the attack. We're scything through them like knives through butter. It's what he does so well. But the senior player on the Zagreb team fouled him 
and there was a a sort of recognition where he didn't have to do it. He could have snarled at him. He could have he could have probably elbowed him in the face and got, and got away, away with it. it. Yeah, yeah, but he didn't do that. He sort of patted him on the head as if to say, "Well done." Recognition. Yeah, you you know when a, a senior pro in a European fixture is doing that to a, a youngster like him. It it just like for me that was a little like a nice little microcosm of um, the respect he deserves. The best bit for me was the first goal when he when two so, Zagreb players took yeah, each other out yeah, trying yeah. to stop him. He went on an amazing little run, and it's like I don't know about the Stockport Iniesta. Is it? I mean, it was more messy than Iniesta. The way he ghosts past players, he drops like how many shoulders has he got? Because he drops <laughs> about four on that run alone, and um, he slinks his way through. More craft than a hipster's beer festival, <laughs> and he he basically he slinks through those players. It was like Keystone Cops. Do you know what I mean? They run. They literally slid into each other, claiming a free kick. It's like you've just fouled yourselves. <laughs> and then uh, I thought Jesus was fair enough as well in the challenge in the box. It's like what you mean popping it in the net? Well, they wanted not, to, well, they wanted, fair they, popping it in the they net. They wanted to, to put it out of play. Was it Jesus did, who so. got the initial that challenge where the guy went down? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. It was like holding his. I think he had an injured psyche at the time. <laughs> his soul had a, a fracture or something. I'm going to do the joke again because you missed it last time. But they wanted City to put the ball out of play, and Jesus did that. So, what, what more? What out of play, dead ball, goal situation? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is one hell of a subtle joke. I'm sorry, I missed it. Do you want me to? Shall I? We can. I can do it one more time if you want me. Can to. edit a laugh in. Yeah, yeah. If, we... you, if you want to. Do you ah, want... you, you. <laughs> that was all you. There right. we go. Um, while we're on Jesus, um, hat trick for him in, uh, in in that game against Zagreb. But he's it's now 14 goals in a row, like not at the Etihad. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird. Like, it's just it's just a coincidence. It's a weird thing, but yeah, um, should have been 15. Well, it should, shouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Although, you know, that header... One against, he had a header against United that he should have scored, so he should have broken the run at that point. Which so. would have also probably won us the game. Maybe. What is wrong with him? <laughs> Hat-tricks, mat-trick. Uh, no, but, you know, he gets a lot of stick, and I, I, I'm i still defending him. Um, I think he's a really good player. I think people giving him stick think... How we used to be. Think about, you know, the stick Adrian Heath used to get, which was probably just, oh, I'm too young to know what you want. <laughs> Sorry. About. No, but like, you know, think if you're an Everton fan, you know, the strikers that you've got and they, they miss a chance like that and they get stick, like, but they don't get that much stick. Do they? He's a really good player. The point I'm making is that if, if he's the foil to Aguero, then it's like, you know, you're in the shadow of an absolute goal monster. It can't, it can't be easy, can it? Being it number two behind the club's best ever striker. Exactly. It's, it is what it is. Exactly. Right, well, as we continue our look down each of the seasons of the last decade, we move to City's second Premier League winning campaign. It's back to 2013-14, where Manuel Pellegrini was the new manager and the club was on its way to its second title in three years. Rob Wilson explains all. After finishing the previous season as runners-up in the Premier League and the FA Cup, the 2013-14 season was one where Manchester City had to prove themselves again. Former Real Madrid manager Manuel Pellegrini was unveiled as Roberto Mancini's replacement and he quickly set about assembling his squad. Brazilian midfielder Fernandinho arrived from Shakhtar Donetsk before Jesus Navas and Alvaro Negredo both joined from Sevilla. Striker Steven Jovetic signed from Fiorentina 
with veteran defender Martin Demichelis completing the lineup of summer arrivals. Under their new boss, City were dominant at home, but had lost four away games before the end of November. A 1-0 defeat to Sunderland left them 8th in the table after 11 games and in desperate need of a good result as Tottenham visited the Etihad. Just about recovers, Navas has a goal! Navas scores! Incredible! Jesus Navas's goal after just 13 seconds sent City on their way as they strolled to a powerful 6-0 victory. After the game, David Mooney and Sam Roscoe were amazed at the speed of City's start. Well, I was I was this close. I mean, seriously close to missing that first goal. Well, it shows you right for having a pie, doesn't it, before the match? <laughs> have a, have a, a pie at half-time. <laughs> no, to be honest with you, I think there's a, there a few blokes um, in front of me that missed missed it. I think they were having a few pints or having a pie, but it serves you right. You should get to the game early. <laughs> City's form in the league improved after that emphatic win, and their fortunes in the Champions League were finally meeting expectations too. After confirming a place in the knockout phase for the very first time, Pellegrini's team met Pep Guardiola's Bayern Munich in the Allianz Arena in the final group game. The defending European champions raced into a 2-0 lead, but City managed to draw the game level in the second half. A James Milner goal then completed the comeback and City ran out 3-2 winners. They finished level on points with Bayern, missing out on top spot in the group by just a single goal. City would eventually exit the tournament to Barcelona, but Paul Atherton was hugely impressed with City's accomplishment in Germany. For me, I'm a bit disappointed that the headlines were about a mathematical failure, rather than the fact that we beat Bayern Munich 3-2 away from home. After turning their form around in the league, City welcomed leaders Arsenal. The title race that year is remembered as being between City and Liverpool, but at this stage the Gunners were the early pace setters. A strike from Sergio Aguero was the first of another six for City. Arsenal mustered three in reply, but couldn't stop the potent attacking force Pellegrini had now turned his team into. Afterwards, Sam Roscoe told the podcast how he loved watching the goals fly in. The expectation now when you go to a City game at home is to see more than three goals going in which is pretty ridiculous. City have scored 75 goals in 25 games in all competitions, which is pretty ludicrous, really. In the League Cup, a 9-1 aggregate victory over West Ham set up another Wembley date in March, City's first under Pellegrini. This time, they would face Sunderland to compete for a trophy they hadn't won since 1976. After Fabio Barini gave the Black Cats an early lead, City needed a piece of magic to kick them into gear. Torrey! Yaya Torre scored yet another goal under the Wembley arch to draw City level and inspire a 3-1 win. It marked Pellegrini's first major trophy in English football and warned the doubters that City was still a force to be reckoned with after their bruising the previous season. After another triumphant day at Wembley, Rob Pollard was particularly impressed with the goals from Torre and Samir Nasri. There were two goals that were worthy of the occasion and there were two goals that, I mean, I think the commentary from uh, Martin Tyler, he alluded to this, that we needed a bit of magic. With the first trophy of the season sealed, focus switched back to the title race. By now, City were locked in a battle with Chelsea and Liverpool as the season's second Manchester derby arrived. City had dominated the first, running out 4-1 winners over David Moyes' struggling Reds, and this derby was to have a similar feel. Edin Dzeko's early goal was the first of three, as City won their third consecutive Old Trafford derby. Rob Pollard was delighted with City's performance. We were faster to every ball. We looked stronger, we looked bigger, we looked more inventive, we looked brighter, we had more ideas. We were just so... we All across that pitch, we were far and away the better side. In April, City met with Liverpool in what many saw as a title decider. 
After marking 25 years since the Hillsborough disaster, Philip Coutinho's late strike was the difference in a 3-2 win for Brendan Rodgers' side. The defeat left City a whole seven points behind in the title race, and it seemed unlikely that Liverpool would let their lead slip. Oh, and Jarrett slipped, and Denver Barr's in here. Out comes Minilay, but Barr punishes of all people, Steven Gerrard. Luckily for City, Liverpool captain Steven Gerrard failed to receive his own memo. After telling his players this does not slip after the win, it was ironic that his error allowed Chelsea striker Demba Barr to score the first of two goals for Chelsea and put the title race back in City's hands. A 2-0 win at Crystal Palace followed by a 3-2 victory at Everton put City back in pole position. For the second time in three years, a title challenge that had seemed dead and buried was suddenly resurrected and after Liverpool dropped more points at Crystal Palace, City needed just two more wins to secure their second Premier League title. The first came in the form of a 4-0 victory over Aston Villa, with Yaya Torre's lung-busting run and finish the pick of the bunch. At one point, we were three, three games behind Chelsea and nine points behind. We had to win those three games in order to get power on points, and I think it's a great achievement. He's, he's had pressure on him all season. You can see now he's putting a bit of that on the players. Just hope they come up and deliver for this last game. And the final fixture was as routine as City could have hoped for. West Ham were the visitors as Samir Nasri and Captain Vincent Kompany secured a comfortable 2-0 win and made Manuel Pellegrini a title winner in his first full season in England. With the second league crown secured, along with the League Cup, City had proved the doubters wrong. Manuel Pellegrini had restored harmony to a dressing room which had seemed fractured just 12 months earlier, and the plan from here was to consolidate their new position as one of England's best teams. Hi, it's Nicky Weaver, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. For a pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of city topics. There's more details on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. Rob Wilson looking back at Manuel Pellegrini's first season in charge there. Now, uh, it's time to look ahead to uh, Arsenal and Oxford. Chris, uh, do you ever worry about a club that's just sacked a manager? Well, I feel for the fans and the players, obviously. I mean, as an opposition team for City, though. Of course you do. Sorry about that. Um, I do, but not as much as... No, I'm I'm phrasing that completely uh, wrongly. Normally I would, but not necessarily now with this Arsenal team and the Freddie... There's been a couple... There's been a few games. It's not like the the bound... I'm cursing cursing us, aren't I? But it's almost like... like the feeling of a lot of fans under Unai Emery, the fact that, that it's now like freedom under Frederick Lundberg, that they can just kind of, that the team is now not under this oppressor. Just going to express themselves yeah. like the true artists they are. Make not, a watercolour of it, boys. Go but I'm mad. Not, I'm not going to claim that Arsenal are a great team, but I am going to claim that they are quite dangerous on the day. Absolutely. And uh, I really rate um, Obama Yang. And although he doesn't seem to do that well, I really rate Lacazette. I think he's a quality player. Uh, they always seem to sub him and not start him and stuff. And I am always like, I rate this guy. Maybe it's one of those scenarios where, you know, when you, when someone first comes to a club and you watch a couple of the games and he does really well and you, you think, think, oh, well, they've got, wow, good, they've got a good player this there. guy, wow. And then you don't really watch them for 18 months because they're Arsenal and they're rubbish. And the Samaras effect. Possibly, yeah, yeah. But players are signed on, on uh, stronger, oh, sorry, on less strong kind of <laughs> urges and whims than that, aren't they? Hence, 
Samaras, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Arsenal, I worry about them because they are capable of turning it on on their day. Um, I think they're definitely psychologically a lot more scared of us than we are of them, which you know doesn't always work in your favour. I'm not massively concerned about it. I think we will beat Arsenal. Do you want to know a little, you know bit, what, of, we, little bit of trivia if City do I beat Arsenal? I always want to know a little bit of trivia. If City do beat Arsenal at the weekend, mm. then they are the first team to win three consecutive away games at the Emirates. That is an interesting bit of trivia. I've been to the uh, Emirates. It's so have I, terrible. I hated it. I saw Kasper Schmeichel save a penalty there. Oh. That was in 2000. It was Sven's season. He nearly, he nearly scored a header right at the end, actually. Kasper Schmeichel? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he went up for a corner. City were losing one nil. He went up for a corner and nearly scored. I'm, I'm still desperate for the day when I see a goalkeeper score. Yeah, for City and not for the opposition. That'd be terrible. But well, yeah, you know absolutely. what I mean. It feels like both of these teams not in great Premier League form at the minute. City, okay, they've just had a great result in midweek, but that happened last week. They had a great result in, in Burnley and played really well, and then didn't show up against United. So it feels like City are quite changeable at the minute. Mm. Arsenal have been up and down for about 15 years. It feels like. Yeah, now. absolutely. I mean. I don't know, what do you take from City's performance at Burnley given Burnley's next game? Burnley looked really bad and it makes you think maybe our apparent good form against Burnley given the relative performances of Burnley and City after but I, that. But I thought I thought City's game at Burnley was, was a tough game. I thought they would be tough and I thought City imposed themselves. So that could have had a knock-on effect to then to Burnley's next game, if that if that makes sense. And it, it, it what what I was surprised at was was the intensity wasn't carried over for City. Yeah, I was surprised about that. The the derby seemed a bit like a Tuesday afternoon training session. The they didn't seem to be invested in the fact that it was a derby, whereas United's lads really did seem like desperate to underdogs, though. Isn't it? That's what happened. Well, the plucky little blighters. Yeah, <laughs> they they did try, didn't they? Yeah. So what what, what, what do you, you want to see? Didn't. What do you want to see from City at Arsenal? Then, do you want, like, is it more important now to win or to get a good performance? I obviously don't mean that they're mutually exclusive either. No, I mean it's if we if we win at Arsenal and it's a really scrappy performance and we look as vulnerable as we always have, as, as, not as we always have, as we currently do, and we spawn a victory, that's not going to imbue any faith, is it? It's not going to be particularly edifying as a, as, a, as a City fan to watch us get a lucky win against a relatively poor Arsenal team. It has to be a good performance, it has to be a win. Otherwise, where are we going? We, we, we need the trajectory to be not horizontal, not slightly down, not undulating. We need it to be like skywards, Onwards and upwards, we need to be powering on from here. That's two words now tonight that you've said that I wasn't expecting. In the Patreon bonus show, it was sandblasted, and now we've had undulating. So. Well, you know, undulating, I usually use it in the context of uh, topography, but uh, there's word number three. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, um, no, but, uh, you know what I mean, though? We need to, I'm going to make some Chris Higginbottom bingo cards for listeners. <laughs> so, <laughs> see, see Hig bingo. Off, yeah, see if we can tick off when you're uh, wait, when you're on what... Because uh, what, 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 your vocabulary is some of the best that I've ever heard. I just, I was just winging it, mate. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, if we don't... if The question was, good performance or result, what's the most important... You also said the two aren't mutually exclusive. They, can get, they could get both, yeah. The two together, for me, are vital. Um, otherwise, forget Zagreb. League form, we've just lost United at home. We looked poor. We didn't look up for it. 
There was a fight back in the second half and we had some terrible decisions. But we know we're up against it with the with the decisions. Uh, you know, <laughs> the the undercurrent is there, isn't it? We're all aware of it. I think that has a t- takes its toll on the team as well. Like every time something happens and it's like, oh, oh we're, definitely, we're definitely getting one. that decision. Oh, we've not got that as well. It's sapping, isn't it? Yeah. It kind of detracts from your, your overall kind of uh, oomph. So uh, then a word on the League Cup game at uh, at Oxford. Um, given how well that Foden, Garcia, Harwood, Bellis played in Zagreb and the chances are that they're likely to play against uh, against Oxford, do you see them being evol- involved at all against Arsenal or is he likely to pick his main, like the senior players again and then go for the youngsters uh, in the League Cup? Game? I think he'll definitely start with the strongest team possible against Arsenal and knowing Pep, he's such a... But isn't there an argument to say that the strongest team possible includes Foden? Yes, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if we start, if he starts with Foden on the bench, and after the first twenty minutes, it's a tall, flat, tepid, not you know bubbling in any way. Get him on, get him on, please. I must have when it when he was first breaking through, and everyone's going, get it, get Foden on. And I was thinking he's only three and three quarters. Like, <laughs> just give him a give him a chance. But now, I mean. He's definitely beyond ready. Uh, he the, the side lacks what he has. What he's got, yeah. It's like there's a there's a Foden shaped hole in that team at the moment in terms of spirit. And there's a Foden shape on the bench. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that shape is Phil, Phil Foden. Foden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like you know, do the jigsaw maths and just get him in there, man. Like please, for the love of your you know the uh, deity of your choice. Um, a quick word on the League Cup draw. Uh, people seem to think that City have been getting lucky draws. Um, and I kind of think, well, it's just kind of reverting to average, isn't it? Because before this season, it was like it was like 17 of 23 games were against Premier League sides. Yeah, we always used to get bad but now, draws. But now it seems to be, oh, the accepted narrative is, oh, well, you know, City, lucky draw. Oh, look at that again. Drawn Burton Albion, drawn Oxford United. But... No, they, for years they were, it was Premier League teams away from home. Well, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because we get a, we've been recently having relatively favourable draws, and those fa- relatively to the draws we have had in the past, and we're also getting absolutely shafted on the pitch in terms of other decisions. <laughs> so uh, swings you know, and roundabouts, really. <laughs> cram it with walnuts. What are you going to do? Um, now time to look at the charity bet. No wins again on last week's show, so we stay on £430 raised for the Christie, a cancer hospital in Manchester. William Hill is giving the winnings of our £10 correct score singles to the charity and with two games to potentially earn some cash this week. Uh, now before the show, uh, Katie sent her predictions in. Uh, she's gone for a 2-1 win at Arsenal, which is 7-1 and £70 if she's right, and a 4-1 win at Oxford United, which is 11-1 and £110 if she's right. Chris, what are you having for uh, for Arsenal to start off with? I'm going to go for two to the Arsenal, three to the Blues. That's three two to Manchester City, which is sixteen to one. So uh, a nice one hundred and sixty pounds, if you're right. And uh, Oxford. Well, I was going to go four one to City, but uh, that was nabbed. But you were too late. I was too late. Uh, so a tardy response from me. So I just thought, you know, sod that. Let's go four nil. 
4-0 is 8-1 to one and £80 if you're right. Uh, I've gone for 2-2 two, two at Arsenal. Um, I, I can see a similar, a, a kind of a, a struggling performance. Two, two. Yeah, I'm sorry about that, but it's 14-1, to one, so at least if I'm right, it's 140 quid to charity. And 3-0 uh, win for City at Oxford, which is uh, the same as last season, I think, and 13-2, uh, to two, so £65 if I'm right on that one. Uh, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change, and for more on responsible gambling, check out begambleaware.org. Now, we're doing things a little bit differently on this week's podcast, so I'll be back with you in a few seconds just after the ad break but for now it's uh, it's goodbye to uh, to Chris so thank you very much Chris pleasure as always thanks for having me and uh, we'll be back after this Now, for the final part of this week's Blue Moon podcast, we're going to do something a little different. Ask the Panel will be back next week, but for the end of this week's show, we're looking at just one question. What can we do to eradicate racism from football? On Saturday evening, a City fan was caught on camera making alleged racist gestures towards United midfielder Fred. On Sunday, a man was arrested in connection with the incident, and for legal reasons, we aren't able to discuss that case specifically on this week's show. Earlier this season, Bernardo Silva served a one-match ban and was then both fined and sent on an educational course over a tweet he sent regarding Benjamin Mendy. It contained a joke based on racial stereotypes. Last season, Raheem Sterling was the victim of racist abuse at Stamford Bridge. It might seem like I'm digging City out here on the topic, but I'm not. Most, if not all, of you listening to this are City fans. I'm a City fan as well. These incidents are all relevant to us, and huge topics like this often have more of an impact when they're closer to home. We always talk about the situation overseas when England travel to other countries, when English teams travel in the Champions League as well, but the truth is we need to look closer to home. So for the final part of this week's show we're going to dedicate it to discussing what will probably make a lot of us feel quite uncomfortable. I'm now joined by Tajin Hutton from the Kick It Out campaign. Hi Tajin. How are you doing? You okay? I'm not too bad thanks. Uh, ben Carrington is a sociologist who has uh, researched racism in football. Hi Ben. Hi there. And Nedim Anua is a former City defender. Hi Nedim. Hello. Hello. So uh, just to begin with, I'd like to like to start with you, uh, Tajan. Um, just uh, what what's currently done in in the UK to stop racism inside uh, inside football grounds? Um, there's a few initiatives, and in it's depending on the institutions or the organisations organisations that you're speaking to. As it stands, there isn't more or less like a unified or a, 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 a uniformed approach collectively. Um, it's more or less people doing their individual things based on what they feel they need to do, based on the feedback that they got from the public. Um, so as it stands, it all depends on, on the, 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 the organisation that you're speaking to from our standpoint. It's just making sure um, that the, the topic of equality and the topic of discrimination is continued to be had in the boardrooms and in, amongst the lips of people of influence. Now, Nedim, like, in the introduction there, I listed a, a, a few things that have happened recently. When, when you're on the pitch, how aware are you of things like this? Uh, I think you, you can become quite aware of it. I think most of the time when you're on the field, you're just involved in the game and you know, you hear songs from thousands of people and so on and so forth, some appropriate, some inappropriate, but it's just every so often when there's like a bit more of a lull in the game, can you really start to see and hear what's actually being said? And for as much as this person said what was gesturing at Fred, like there's a whole different topic just about abuse abuse in general, because when you go out on that field, some of the things that, you've heard, that I've heard across my career have been absolutely, you know, scandalous and to think that normal people are saying these things, which they would never say, like or do out on the streets is, uh, I think that's a big problem. It's an interesting kind of question, Ben. I want to I want to ask you that that sort of question. I mean, why why do people do that? Why do people turn to to racism when, like Nedham says, they probably wouldn't, you know, every, in everyday life? Um, well, I'm not sure that's true. I, I think one of the things that we might have to be honest about is that maybe there is more racism within everyday life than we're prepared to admit. Now, 
maybe in public people are less likely to do and say things. But I, I, I find it highly unlikely that some of the incidents that you refer to in, in, in the introduction um, were done by people who in their private life never say a racist word, never use race, racist epithets, don't use racist gestures, don't engage in racist banter. And then suddenly they get to the football ground and they transform into people who are comfortable with, with using racist language. So another way to look at it is maybe maybe we've deluded ourselves, maybe we've kidded ourselves that racism kind of disappeared from British society. Maybe we should be more honest and say there's a political climate right now in which immigrants are vilified, in which, you know, as we saw with the Windrush scandal, you know, the black Caribbean populations who have been in Britain for decades who consider themselves to be British suddenly realised they weren't as British as they believed, or they were believed uh, that they were. So one option or one way to think about it actually is that the racism hasn't really disappeared from British society. It kind of changed, it kind of hides a bit and, the, and football provides a space where people feel comfortable enough to express their feelings that in other domains they have to keep semi-private. Could I just jump in for a second? Yeah, of course. If that's all right. So I just need to clarify that point because uh, I agree with what he was just saying because for me, one of my biggest issues whenever I talk about race and things like this and racism and so on, is the fact that it, we talk about it the most when we talk about sport, but it is a bigger issue than that. When race falls on the back pages, the, page, that, the back pages change every single day. This is a front page issue, but it doesn't get discussed as such. So we talk about, oh, maybe we should ban them from stadiums, maybe we should do this, maybe we should do whatever. But th that will just teach people in some ways to just be quiet when they go to a stadium. But it doesn't mean that the way that they view other people has actually changed, because overall it hasn't. And I, I'm... I'm not, I'm not a pessimist as such, but I'm more realist. And I know that for minorities, no matter what they are, if you, if you are a black person in the UK, the percentage that you represent, even though you can live in an area that appears very diverse, is still very, very low. So people's views aren't going to change, you, change of you until they're affected by something. And some people do buy into it and they feel your pain and they feel your story, but you still make up just such a small minority of what is essentially you know, like a, a white, a white British, a white British country, essentially. You know what I mean? And for me to say I'm offended, actually enough to say it, or someone enough to say it a thousand times, to get to maybe make a few people change their mind. And the fact is, we've been saying it, and nothing's really changing. And the fact is, it's because most people don't really care. So I feel like as a, as a black person now in the UK, it's all about how once you get the platform, a way that you can speak, that will get more people to get involved because change will come not necessarily through us solely protesting. It will come from people within the majority, majority protesting for us as well. And that's the thing which has been really, really slow across the years, in my opinion. Well, I was going to say on, on that kind of front, uh, to Jean, how, how can we kind of help the, the, the situation inside grounds? Because we, we all, there must be, the, we can't go a, a, a season where, where somebody doesn't hear something or, or sees something that, that they feel uncomfortable with. So as, as, as somebody who, who isn't the target of racist abuse, what could I do, for instance? I think it's, it's it's making a stance, not even as a, as a fan of football or somebody involved in the football industry, it's just making a stance as a person. I think far too often we separate this idea that football within, or racism within stadiums and racism in, in general day-to-day -day, um, day -day life are two separate things. And I feel like if you're not making a stance within your friends or your family or your office environment, um, in essence... Um, making a stance within a football stadium is not going to have any effect because it's not a footballing issue. Yes, 
um, football can take the lead in a lot of um, ways and aspects into into tackling it or, or making a stance. However, football isn't the answer. The answer is in what we're doing today today. Unfortunately, Britain's still in a state where we haven't accepted the fact that we have a race issue within this country. And until we get to that stage of acceptance and accountability and making change based upon that, the state of football stadiums is always going to be the same because as, as both gentlemen alluded to, it's not, it's not a footballing issue. We can equip... Um, stewards and we can equip all the people that facilitate football within stadiums or within grassroots football all we want but that doesn't eradicate the problem what it does is it creates a controlled environment creating controlled environment is, doesn't go to the heart or the root of the problem and I feel like until we tackle it as an actual problem within British culture and society it's always going to be the same within stadiums Ben, how true is it that that fans or, or fans of a particular team might be able to, to to look at it and go, you know, you know what? I know I shouldn't be doing this, but if it gives our team that little bit of an advantage and, and puts somebody off their game, is that is that ever a draw to anybody to, to to go beyond the realms of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable? Yeah, I think that's true, and, and part of it is. So, what, I think one of the problems that we have is that you know the, the football crowd the football fandom is a really rich environment yeah i mean it's a great culture it's funny it's organic it's biting you know it emerges from the kind of working class banter that many of us grow up with and that we love the problem is it can very easily slip from that kind of jovial banter into something much darker much nastier and i think we have to say that we need to kind of be honest and hold ourselves accountable. And I think one of the big problems for me is that we're just not being honest in this debate. So, and as I've said in, in other contexts, like racism always plays away. Racism never plays at home. So when Luis Suarez racially abuses Patricia Evra, the Liverpool fans, do they come out and say, Liverpool have a proud tradition of anti-racism. And even though Luis Suarez is, is one of our players, we condemn Suarez unequivocally. No. What happens is, is that the fans and the players, shamefully, the players come out with, with uh, we support Suarez shirts after he's been found guilty. So the Liverpool fans say, well, we, we're against racism, but not when it includes one of our players. And then the Chelsea fans, when John Terry was found to racially have abused Anton Ferdinand, do they come out and say, well, John Terry was our captain, but nonetheless, we're against racism? No, they come out and defend him. And let's be very honest, so did Man City fans over Bernardo Silva. Time and time again, whenever it's, whenever the racism is about or involves one of the players at uh, their club, there's this kind of automatic defence that we, well, we need to protect our own. And I think we have to be honest and say, no, racism doesn't just play away, it plays at home. And we can't just stop singling out the racist individual football fans, although we should, of course, you know, sanction them, but to say it's part of a wider culture in which these forms of anti-black racism and often Islamophobia, if you look at you know, the abuse that Mo Salah has been getting, like th- this simply has to stop and it has to stop by, and I agree with what you just said a moment ago, by those fans who themselves may not be engaging in racist abuse, but they know their mate does. And they either laugh along or they don't say anything in the pubs, in the taxi, when you're at home watching TV. That normalization of racism in private then bleeds out into the public space. And it means that white people have to stand up and call out their mates and their friends, even if that's going to be an awkward conversation. Because if you don't, it means that when you have these kind of public forums and somebody feels a bit more confident, then black players are going to be racially abused in their places of work. And that's completely unacceptable. 
Nedham, you you've spoken to us in the past about uh, about your growing up and, and your experiences growing up uh, in, in in Manchester. What has anything changed since you were younger? Um, from where from where I was raised, I think things have changed quite a lot. Yes, but it's, it's yeah, it's better. But I, you know, I'd almost expect it to be better because some of the things that were going on in the early nineties when I was in, when I was close to that stadium were as wild as they come. So yeah, it, it is better. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it's anywhere near great or anything at all. But the points that have all been made here are so valid because it is a case of, you know, if someone's saying something that they shouldn't be saying, like, don't just sit there and say nothing if you know that it's wrong. Because I think overall, a lot of people, they're happy to say what they say. And usually when someone says something that is racist or is discriminatory in any particular way, most of them don't believe that it is, even though someone's telling them that it is. So the more times we can almost educate people to understand what they what is right and what is wrong, you know, maybe their views will change. Maybe the way they'll start acting around other people will change, and they can be more of an empathetic people instead of just you know saying and doing whatever they want because there's no there's no accountability. If you surround yourself with people just like you and talk about others in a negative way, and everyone just buys into it, then you know it feels like it's fine. Have you ever been in a situation where one of the opposition players is being racially abused and you're thinking, well, actually, you know, that's, that, that's also me? Yeah, do you know what? For that, or that at the weekend, that affected me in two ways. You could argue three because essentially like, I, am, I, am a, I am a black male, I'm a black football player and I'm a black Manchester City supporter. And to see, this is very terrible, so to see that, like I... People like Raheem Stone, who's trying to make a big difference when it comes to um, things like this, he has to be on the field now and watch the people who love him, who he sticks up for, behave in a way which not only affects the club but affects him as well. You know that that is so in. So I'm lucky I've not been on the field. To be honest, I've been on the field where people have abused me, but I've never been on the field where someone's abused the opposition. But to see that is so it's so it's so embarrassing. Like this is this is your own. And you know that this person's wrong because it's affecting you. Like to think that someone can allegedly make these gestures about someone who's black in the opposition when you have black players in your own team as well. It's just, and they say that they're doing support their team. Like I just don't. It doesn't logically. It doesn't make sense. But then, unfortunately, I think that's the way that a lot of this stuff goes. And logic just appears to go out the window. So, Sean, we've we've talked about um, sanctioning uh, people who are caught making uh, racist gestures, uh, involving themselves in racial abuse. Uh, what what can be done? Because it, it feels like at the moment that that, for instance, life bans for supporters don't seem to be too much of a deterrent. A few match bans for for players don't seem to be don't seem to be doing the job of, of a deterrent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's. it's- it's frustrating from my standpoint because um, from a, from my standpoint, I, I manage the grassroots sector at, at Kick It Out. And if you, if you have a safe instance, a gentleman by the name of Kevin who's found guilty at a Manchester City game of racially abusing somebody else, you can give him a, a lifetime ban from the stadium. However, that doesn't stop Kevin as a parent from going to a game on a, on a local park on a Sunday and racially abusing another kid because the ideology is still there. Banning somebody from the environment doesn't change the ideology. And that's the issue that we have at the moment, is we feel that banning somebody is, is, is eradicating the problem. It may eradicate the person from the environment. However, that doesn't take that person out of society. It has to, we have to get to a point where, we, where we're consciously challenging mindsets now. Um, and that's not limited to football. That's everywhere. And until we start challenging mindsets, finding out why they think the way they feel, why, why they think the way they think, why they speak the way they speak, and why they act the way they act, and challenging that based on our own morals, 
it's always going to talent taking people out of the equation only eradicates or, or opens up an empty seat that can easily be filled by somebody else with the same ideology the same racist mentality it has to be a challenging of mindsets now but in order to challenge mindsets you have to have the right people in position in order to challenge those mindsets which is for a reason for me why the issue of racism is beyond the stadiums and beyond the fancies. It starts with the boardrooms, the people of authority within the football industry. Those who should have people in place to challenge people of discriminative mindsets. And unfortunately, none of that is in place. Ben, do we need to see more diverse kind of the upper, more diversity at the upper echelons of clubs? So, like uh, like Sir John says, in the boardroom. Yeah, I think because one of the problems is we we. We talk about how multiracial and how multicultural football is, but what we really mean is there's a high proportion of black players on the pitch. There's not, there's very few South Asian professional players who are actually, you know, a, a percentage wise a bigger group in Britain than, than than the black British population. And you're right, we have a we have a continuing forms of systemic institutional racism that views black people as being good enough to be players now, but not good enough to be coaches and managers. If you go into the upper echelons of UEFA, of the FA, of the English Premier League, it's overwhelming. To to quote Greg Dyke from many years ago when he was director general of the BBC, you know, the outside of the football pitch, football is hideously white. You know, and and just go back quickly to the question you raised before. So you're right, are things, people often say, are things better than they were before in the 70s and 80s. Yes, they are, we've had progress. But let's be honest, that's such a low bar. If, if the bar is, do we now have, do we do we any longer have 10 to 15 to 20,000 people singing in unison racist chants and using the N-word? No, we don't have that. But that, that shouldn't be the bar for progress, surely. That's right. Yeah, but that's, if that's our starting point, that things are better now because 10,000 people don't racially abuse black players, then yes, things are better. But it should be, well, now we only have a couple of hundred. Or we only have like 10 or a few every single game. So I think it's not so much even that we have a, a racism problem. We have a denial of racism problem. And that's the biggest issue right now that people even when we do have these incidences of racism there's always a denial well it wasn't men or that wasn't really a, a that wasn't really like a, a monkey gesture someone was pretending to be a caveman you know it looks like i was making a racist gesture but really i just had my hands in my pocket etc time and time again and then when we do have these incidents the upper echelons of football fail to act and they fail to act adequately and uh, as long as that is the case we're not going to have that deep-seated discussion, both within football and beyond football, which is why do so many white fans and people think it necessary to have their identity predicated upon viewing black people as being less than they are? I mean, that, that's that's the bottom of it. That's the that's the root cause of racism. This this sense of white identity that needs anti-black racism to show itself up. And until that shifts and changes, then I think, sadly, we are going to continue to see these incidences. And then those in power are going to take the necessary steps to begin to change it. And, I, and then, you know, the Premier League had this big campaign this season, yes, which enough, enough is enough. No room for racism. Well, I think we really need to, at, at this stage, we start, we need to go way beyond the kind of, players being getting you know, a one match ban or two or three match bans and a £50,000 fine to say, if you're found guilty of racism as a player, as a manager, the, the, the first offence you're given a season's ban and then a lifetime ban. Because that's what they did in America. You, you may remember 
in the NBA, Donald Sterling was the former owner of the LA Clippers, one of the big teams out here in Los Angeles. And he was found guilty of, or tapes emerge of him racially abusing NBA players. Within four days, Donald Sterling was given a lifetime ban from the NBA. This is an owner, and he was stripped of ownership. He was forced to sell the Clippers. Now, that's sanctions. Imagine that in the UK, where an owner is given a lifetime ban from football. Because it's easy to give the fans bans, yes? I mean, this is what's happening now. We're taking strong action against the fans. What about the players and what about the managers and the coaches, as we've seen in Italy and in Spain and elsewhere, engaging this type of racist language? So much, much stronger sanctions, a bigger discussion, a more honest discussion about whiteness and white identity. And the fact that even today, if you're black British, you're still seen to be sub, no suspect to some degree. That, that just has to stop. Nedham, would you, would you maybe support things like a points deduction for clubs? Um not really now I suppose it's a measure but I don't I don't really see how that changes the issue to be honest like as the as the guys have been saying you know it's, it's bigger than football itself like you can be deducted points but people still think the way that they think I think um, as we were talking about before in terms of the changes from the 70s 80s and so on and so forth it feels like we're in a place now where legally you can't you can't do certain things but culturally nothing else has really changed if you know what I mean? And it's the changing culture which will essentially bring the change in behaviour. So talking about deducting points and this, that and the other, like it's related to say someone being banned from a stadium, which is a sanction in itself. If somebody loves their team more so than love any player, and then you take away their ability to go to the stadium, in some ways it might make the issue worse within that person. So overall, nothing's been changed apart from the fact that in that particular environment where someone will appear 19 games in a season, you might not see this one particular person, but the problem is now bigger because now there's someone that's enraged because they've, take, they've taken away something which means more to them than anything else. You, you get what I mean? So the two-point sanction and so on is... Or the point sanction, I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that because it just feels like it's you stepping out and choosing to show that you're doing something as opposed to doing something of value. And sorry to also go back to this, I think someone mentioned the Enough campaign or something. Do you remember that? Just got said a moment ago. Well, I don't know if anyone on the show was involved in this, but I think it came from the PFA. And I have certain issues with the PFA, to be honest with you, because with this campaign, as a player, the day before it was due to happen, to send you a message, say, do this, post this, we're making a stand. And I then started to ask some questions as to, oh, who was involved in the creation of it? What was this? What was that? And... From the person I spoke to, no player was really involved in doing it. It was the PFA showing that they were behind the players after a series of incidents. But the campaign itself doesn't involve, not involving the people who are facing the abuse and so on. Then what type of idea is it? Like, it's great. Okay, we'll do it. We'll just do this to show that we're all together. But everyone has to do it. And you've got no reason. You've like literally got a message the day before. Just pop this on. Everyone change the logo. Everyone say this. Everyone say that. But that's not that's not unity. That's just being people told what to do, being told what to do. And all those people who maybe did have a big platform to try and find change, maybe they would have used their platform better and would have made more of a difference if they were involved in the creation of the scheme together. Because you know all players will come together, but it's different when they get told what to do. And that campaign itself, I found it more. I, I personally found it more embarrassing than uplifting, whereas other people would put it on. But it's just a, just a typical 
thing when it comes to discrimination where, you know, we're going to do something, we're going to all just do it together and it'll look nice. But then give it a week and it's all gone. And nobody cares anymore because that's the nature of the campaign. It at its soul. It didn't have true meaning. Like I think yeah, I spoke to Danny Rose at the time. He was a, they were trying to involve him and give him a quote towards um, uh, towards towards back in the campaign. And he said, okay, that's all fine. But can you also put in something about also bringing in black managers and coaches and blah blah blah? And the campaign said, yeah, we'll do that. And then when the quote came out, that wasn't even involved in the quote itself. So you can see, so you can see, certain people are trying to show that they're doing something, but when it comes down to the real importance of it and what really needs to be said and really needs to be done, it's not being done, but it still feels like you're doing something. So they're happy with that. So as I say, it was a, for me, it was a nonsense campaign. One final question then to uh, to everybody. I'll start with you, uh, to John. Uh, what what can we do? What um what 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 message should people should listeners take from this this discussion to be to be able to move forward now? Um, if there's one message I can say or I to try and give to everybody listening is um if you if you witness any type of of racist abuse coming from anybody, whether it be your nearest and dearest, it could be your colleagues outside of the football environment on public transport, in an Uber, in a shop, wherever it is, say something about it. Because at that point what you're doing is you're challenging culture and in, in the day to day environment. This isn't I can reiterate again, this isn't a football problem. Yes, football has the ability to lead in various situations, however it's not a football problem. It's not limited or directed to football. It's a societal problem. And if you're allowing your work colleagues and your family and your friends to, to act a particular way that you know they shouldn't be acting, you have to speak up because this is a collective thing. Us as black people are the minorities. We can't take on the entire country by ourselves and it's a collective effort. Um, and if that means that you're being you're you're being being made to be the outcast amongst your circle of friends or family, then that's where it's got to be. But we need more courageous people in this country to start speaking up now. And that's as I said, it's not limited to football. That's in day to day day to day work. Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with that. I, I I'd modify that slightly. So I'd say it's not only a football problem because the danger is if we say it's not a football problem sometimes. And I know that wasn't the intent intention but sometimes that allows those in football to say hey look this is quote a societal problem well football is part of society like football doesn't take place on some other planet outside of society so it's it, but you're right so it's not only a football problem but it is a problem for football and it's a problem for wider society and i think as i said earlier um an easy way to stop this is for white people to stop being racist. <laughs> That's a very easy way to, to deal with a problem. And that means we do need some accountability of white people thinking, you know what, the next time I'm, I'm in the pub or I'm in the taxi or I'm hanging out with my mates and some of that banter becomes a bit racist, I'm going to have to step up and say, actually, that's not that funny. And just because our black friends left the space doesn't mean that we can revert back to this kind of normalized race, racial language in a very similar way as a man. I would argue that many men are aware that when we're amongst ourselves, sexist banter takes place. And if we're straight guys, homophobic banter takes place. And often it takes a bit of courage for us to step up and say, hey, guys, you know what? That's, I don't think that's that funny. And the danger will be in that moment you'll feel ostracized, you'll feel a bit um, vulnerable. But basically, this is what needs to happen on a day to day basis. We need to stop excusing racism. We need to stop denying that racism exists. And if we can get to that stage, you know, and, and football can be the beautiful game. I am optimistic. You know, it seems, seems like this conversation may have been a bit too pessimistic. I think it's just realistic. 
I'm optimistic that the beautiful game can genuinely be beautiful. But that can only happen if we're willing to acknowledge the, the, the kind of the aspects of the game which are less beautiful, which are a bit ugly. And that means addressing racism within the game, but also, and I agree with the comments being made earlier, addressing racism in our everyday lives and within our political systems. Like the wider political discourse right now in Britain is one that sounds eerily similar to the types of discussions in the 1960s and 1970s. The particular groups may have changed, but this notion of kind of British supremacy around the world and kind of putting the great back into Great Britain, this kind of hyper-nationalist discourse at this particular moment in, in British history is allowing for the kind of the worst aspects of British society to reveal itself. And it means collectively as fans, as, as mums and sisters and brothers and dads, we're going to have to begin to change our attitudes on a daily basis. And if we can do that, then hopefully we may begin to see a shift um, in, in the types of racist abuse that we've been seeing, sadly, too often um, in too many places. I think we need to be more honest about the situation. I think we need people that sit within the majority to listen to the minority, no matter what, whether that's females in the workplace, whether that's people from different countries or whatever, and really listen to what they're saying and maybe gain an understanding of why something is right or why something is wrong. And not just say, well, I don't care because I'm in the majority. You need to listen to these people. And you shouldn't, for all the stuff that, say, some of the minorities have been through across the last few decades, hundreds of years, you shouldn't be in a position now whereby some of those problems still exist because some of the stuff that happened then, which they had to go through, was completely unacceptable. So to even have a slight thought in your mind that, well, no, that this is fine today or whatever, like, that's completely wrong. As I say, it requires the courage of people within that majority, even whether they agree or disagree, to understand that this is wrong and as a consequence they can't perpetuate what is wrong because the moment they do it's very it can spread so much quickly within that comfortable space and change will come i believe from when people become more empathetic so listen to people who are being discriminated against or being spoken about in a, in a wrong way and then you individually try and make change and the more people that do that the better it will be will be you hear fewer things at stadiums you hear fewer things out in the streets you want to have the culture where racist, homophobic, sexist, whatever jokes are being passed around, like fly around the internet and so on. You know, we'll be drifting towards a better place where if someone does send that, instead of somebody forwarding it on, you say, well, no, this is wrong. I'm going to delete this. And in that moment, that's progress. Even if it seems like you're the odd one out, progress for the masses will always be better than just, you know, just always trying to keep people down. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time on uh, this week's Blue Moon podcast, but uh, special thanks to my guests for the end of this week's show too, uh, to Gene Hutton from Kick It Out. Thank you very much. No pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, sociologist Ben Carrington, thank you. Thanks for the discussion. And former City defender Nedim Anua. Nedim, thank you very much. No, thanks for having me. Take care. Now, thank you for listening to this week's show. Don't forget to give it a rating and a review on iTunes and take a look at our Patreon page as well, patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. I'll be back next week to look at City's games with Arsenal and Oxford United. See you then. Take care. was the blue moon podcast please support the show patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast